Welcome to the next episode of P5 Health Podcast. With me today is Mel Grovit, uh, who has a very interesting background. It is especially interesting to me, um, as I have a lot of my listeners know I have a history with inflammatory bowel disease, and it's what got me interested in finding people that have unique answers to, in particular, chronic health problems. So uh, welcome today. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure to be here. And so we recently met through some extended family, and uh, I can't believe I didn't meet you years ago, <laughs> which I had. Um, you probably would have been my one of my very first guests on this podcast several years back. Oh, thank you. Um, but you've had a very long, interesting life on a personal health um, and and work side, and I would love to really give you control for a little bit to go back and talk about your history. Uh, but for those listeners who are wondering why they're here, um, Dr. Grovit has a very, uh, uh, I think, practical, doable approach to not only dealing with inflammatory bowel disease, but in my opinion, putting it into what I would call um, a cure state, uh, which or remission, as doctors always want to say, which I hate because I view diseases as verbs, not nouns. Um, and uh, even remission sounds like a state, uh, a static state. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you. I'd love to hear your background. I think our listeners would love to hear um, all about how you came to be you and what you do. Well, the first thing I have to say is my family has cautioned me not to use the cure word. So I'm going to differ with you a little bit and refer to this as a remission. Um, and as people go through life and they are not afflicted with Crohn's disease, again, with uh, exacerbations of the same, um, we'll let them call it a cure if they wish. I, I like to refer to it as an extended remission. So this all started for me when I was roughly 15 years old. I started having these intolerable gas pains, asking every science teacher I could find what causes gas. And of course, I, I never got a satisfactory answer uh, until my mother noticing that I had lost pretty close to 45 pounds. I kept putting sweaters on to hide my uh, my loss of weight. Took me to a wonderful doctor at Yale University, Dr. Harvey Cates, uh, and the diagnosis was established, a very serious case of Crohn's disease. Uh, in fact, most of my intestine was involved, and I was told by this wonderful doctor that going to college would be too much of a stressor. Um, and that I should consider taking some time off. When I got him alone, I asked him, what did he mean? Um, and he, he kept hedging. And I said, are you telling me that I may not live long enough to go to a college? And he paused and didn't really answer the question. So that was an answer that I understood. So I decided to go to college anyway. There was a college one mile away from my home, the New Haven State Teachers College. Uh, I enrolled there. Uh, one and a half years into that uh, education, I became acutely ill. I was 19 years old now uh, and admitted to the hospital with fulminant uh, Crohn's disease. In those days, it was referred to as regional enteritis. The bottom line on that is that uh, I was in the hospital for months. Uh, eventually, I was released. And so in my own head, I was trying to understand what was I capable of. I wanted to go to Yale University and go to medical school. Um, my uncle uh, was a renowned ophthalmologist there. And so he was a role model as far as I was concerned. It wasn't meant to be. And so that summer, or from April until 
eight weeks after, I decided to do two things that I couldn't do before. I couldn't swim because I almost drowned when I was five years old. And I couldn't dance because I was a musician and playing at various dances, Yale University, uh, Polish weddings, you name it. We had a group that was literally, we had won everything possible uh, in our area. We were also interviewed for um, Ted Max Amateur Hour, and we were scheduled to appear on Ted Max Amateur Hour. Unfortunately, he went off the air. So we never made it there, but the newspapers printed it anyway. You know how local newspapers are. So here I am trying to understand what am I capable of. So I needed swim lessons because what I wanted to do was become a lifeguard. Uh, that, that was rather ambitious, but that's pretty much how my head works. So I took about two weeks of swim lessons and then began the American Red Cross standardized course in life savings. Um, 22 laps later, I became a certified uh, lifeguard. At the same time, I began taking Arthur Murray dance lessons. And at the end of that, uh, experience, I was eligible to become an Arthur Murray dance teacher. So I now knew that if I put my mind to things, I could make things happen. And so I never took no for an answer. If somebody told me it wasn't possible, I made it possible. The answers to most of inflammatory bowel disease are within the National Library of Medicine. For the public, that's PubMed. That's where I got all my information to cure myself. I consider myself cured. Um, my journey involved a resection of my jejunum and um, about three feet of my ileum by Dr. Max Taffel, chief of surgery at Yale. He left the intestine inside me with a blood supply, a procedure that would be banned today. And so I lived my life with three feet of intestine and no food went through for nine years. At the end of nine years, I became acutely ill, so acutely ill that I literally was on 83rd Street crawling into my physician's office, Dr. Henry Coulter who was so far ahead of his time, it's just mind boggling what this man taught me. And of course, if anybody teaches me something, I never forget it. And so I was rushed to a uh, prominent New York City hospital. And the world famous Leon Ginsburg was the doctor that we wanted to have uh, surgery with. He declined, he said, I will kill you. At which point, my wife, who basically had never stood up to anyone, pointed at him and said, he's already dead. Give him a fighting chance. So long and short of it is Dr. Ginsburg operated on me. He found 18 feet of intestine completely diseased. He resected it took the remaining uh, eight or nine feet. I'm not exactly sure how many. The, the intestine is a little bit like an accordion. So basically, I have eight or nine feet of intestine functioning at this point. Uh, immediately after the surgery, I developed a, a stenotic area, which I'm very grateful for because that slowed the transit time down. Uh, and... I haven't had a recurrence since then. That was in 1965. Wow. What else did you, what else did you change at that point? Uh, I started to think like a healthy person. 
<laughs> and I accepted no boundary on what my potential could be. You know, it's very interesting what, what's happened in my life. I've, so I've had a year and a half of undergraduate education. Um, I eventually became interested in doing something for others because students of mine, they would pass me in the hall and tell me about their complaints with their Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis, and I would just hand them comments. And then one day a group of them came to my office, stood in front of the door and said, Dr. Grover, you've got to get a master's degree in nutrition. All you did was talk to us and, and were cured. So that led me to apply for a grant from the American Podiatric Medical Association, uh, and I received it. And Columbia University was doing a pilot project at the University of Bridgeport. It was a three-year contract that I believe they had. In the second year of their contract, I enrolled as a student. So essentially, I got a Columbia education for free. Uh, just thinking back, John Pinto, the world authority in riboflavin, was my vitamin professor. Kathy Fairbanks, who uh, taught us developmental nutrition, had a child that was born without eyes. Uh, these were people who really knew what nutrition was all about. And so when I handed in my dissertation, uh, my advisor said, gee, I never knew this. And that became my first inkling that I seemed to know things that just weren't common knowledge. Having lived with this illness, I learned things before they were even published. So that's, that's where I am at this point. So, um, so you're maybe go through your professional background, which is a little different, I would say. Um, and, uh, would love to just understand how you, how you progressed. Well, I was graduated from the New York College of Podiatric Medicine here in uh, Manhattan. Um, I chose podiatric medicine because it was possibly the only way I could get a medical education uh, without succumbing to the stresses of medical education. Uh, also, because I was so sick, my grades weren't exactly exemplary. Uh, so that's the path I chose. Um, the then dean seemed to see something in me. And the moment I graduated, he made me supervisor of the clinic, uh, which is very strange. You know, one minute you're a student, the next minute you're running the clinic. Hmm. Uh, that lasted for about two or three years. And then I studied with a brilliant, brilliant uh, podiatrist, uh, Marvin D. Steinberg, uh, who studied with George Pack, the famous cancer surgeon. So what I learned from Marvin Steinberg uh, was absolutely invaluable. And, and at this point, I'm beginning to realize if I'm left alone to learn something, um, I learn it and I retain it. Uh, so that's pretty much the way my, my career started off. Uh, we went through trials and tribulations with my illness, with my my uh, my dear wife. If it weren't for my wife, I wouldn't be alive. And we've been married now 60 years. Mm. And so my first real complication, and this is what taught me what, what a doctor really should be. My first complication of Crohn's disease was a kidney stone. I spoke with Dr. Kocher on the phone. He said, it sounds like a kidney stone. I'll be up to see you later. This is a Fifth Avenue kind of doctor who made a house call. And he came to see me and he said, you have a kidney stone. I proceeded to have innumerable kidney stones. I don't have to tell you what kind of disruption that causes in your life. 
I never went to see my daughter graduate from high school. I was never able to see my daughter graduate from college. Um, but she always knew my heart was with her. And so after God knows how many kidney stones, I decided they've got this all wrong. One of my dear friends was Mike Roberts, a brilliant, brilliant neurological surgeon. And he said to me, Mel, I'm just a mechanic. I just take them out. And then it came to me, why are we analyzing the stone? We need to be analyzing my urine. And so one of my classmates uh, was the brother-in-law of the world-famous nephrologist at Harvard, Barry Brenner. And I called Barry and I asked him who, who, would, who would be the person I should go see. He said, Fred Coe in Chicago. Well, the next thing I knew, I was on a plane with my wife to Chicago. And during all of this, these episodes, there was a lot of humor. For example, um, when I, I met Dr. Coe, he wanted me to do a on-the-spot urinalysis. And so he wanted me to carry a bag um, and urinate into the bag. So we did that, and my wife wanted to see the Chagall windows in, in the uh, Chicago Museum. So we went there, and uh, lo and behold, there was a leak in the bag. So everywhere I went, I left a, a trail. Uh, well, it wasn't so sanitary for the museum, but also I was losing valuable uh, material. Went back to Dr. Cole, gave me another bag, and you know we took care of that. The analysis came in, and ironically, a lot of things happened at once at that point. He suggested that I go on potassium citrate. I went on potassium citrate. And my heart became so, I don't even know how to describe it, but it felt like I was going to die. Uh, and then I analyzed my situation and realized that short bowel syndrome, you lose a lot of sodium. So I was basically working my into a state of uh, hyperkalemia, excess potassium. So when I substituted the salt, um, things got a little bit better, but I did better than that. I started taking sodium citrate instead of potassium citrate on a chronic basis, and that was the end of my kidney stones. But at the same time, uh, a doctor, I can't think of his name for the moment, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine a, a paper on uh, hypocitriuria secondary to short bowel syndrome. It was though this paper was written for me. And so I looked at the protocol. It made a lot of sense. It was magnesium citrate. Although he was using injectable magnesium, there was no way I was going to do that because I felt that might be a central nervous system depressant. I wouldn't be able to contain my, uh, what would happen. And so I developed a protocol of taking uh, sodium citrate, 400 milligrams, three times a day, and some magnesium in the morning and some magnesium at night. I did pH studies on my urine to evaluate whether or not the alkalinity was where it should be, somewhere between 6 and 6.2. I hydrated myself. I did everything I could as to what was known at the time. And years later, it, you know, you look at this and you say to yourself, most of the physicians in, in the United States knew nothing about this. Fred Coe was the leader in this. I accidentally read a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I got myself better. So that's that's what happened there. And how long have you been you know, focused on patients with IBD? Well, I was not doing very much for other people other than passing comments, as I indicated before with my students. But at one point, I think it was around 1994, perhaps. No, that would be 84. No, I can't remember the exact date. But Jordan Shapiro was carried into my office by her father. Uh, he was crying. Her mother was crying. 
and they were advised that their daughter was dying of malnutrition. All medicines had failed her. And I had to make a decision at that moment. Am I going to do this professionally for real? Or am I just going to be a coward and kind of hand off uh, information and, and that be done with it? I, and I couldn't do that. I absolutely could not do that. So in about 20 seconds, I decided this is it. There's, there's a change coming in my life. Jordan Shapiro gained eight pounds in 10 days. That caught the attention of her endocrinologist. He was new to the case. Uh, and he called me on the phone. He was on the phone with me for about 45 minutes. He eventually wanted to meet with me, and he came down to the college where I was the department chair at this point. And, and we've been inseparable ever since. What Alf Slonim did for me is just not to be believed. He was being asked to join Columbia University Medical Center. He was one of the top five physicians in the United States with respect to Pompeii disease. A movie was made about this man. Harrison Ford played him. It turned Alf into a scientist. And Alf told Columbia University, I will not come to Columbia unless Mel Grovett comes with me. And so I was on the staff at Columbia for about nine years. He retired. They kept me on for one more year. Uh, I think they kept me on only because I asked uh, to have the privileges of the National Library of Medicine. And so it lasted for a year, and then they didn't reappoint me. I think a big mistake on their part, but that's the way it is. And so maybe maybe this is a good launch point to go into how you um, treat, advise patients um, on, on what to do and what your protocol is when someone comes to you with presenting with Crohn's or colitis. Well, there's something we should establish before. It, it's not a protocol. Each patient is evaluated on the basis of their needs. Mm -hmm. You know, medicine has taken the, the standardized approach where you do one thing and that's it. And if that doesn't work, you try something else, but you stick to one thing. One of the criticisms of me by a gastroenterologist, uh, Jordan's gastroenterologist, was that I change things. Well, I change things based upon what is happening with the patient, and that's the way it ought to be. And so Jordan Shapiro went from a dying child to being 30 years old at this point, healthy as can be. At one point, one doctor called Jordan an urban legend. She was no urban legend. She was a sick kid. And she and I, I guess, defied the standard of care at the time. And she's alive to tell it. And what came out of that was the Nutrition and Inflammatory Bowel Disease Foundation. A foundation started by Lenore and Keith Shapiro and Jordan Shapiro. And basically we have we have been involved with, I, I don't know how many people at this point. And um, so if, if someone comes to you with pre-diagnosed Crohn's, to take another 18 or 20 year old today or 16 year old, what, what will they encounter? What, what tests do you either order either genetic or um, otherwise? And, and so Really what I'm looking at this from is from a perspective of a framework of how to approach. I, I always call them more like adaptive protocols. So in other words, you, you have a lens through which you see the world and it changes based on the information. But I think people tend to learn by examples. So I'd love to hear if someone comes to you, what tests you order and then well, how, you know, maybe go back and forth a little about you know, uh, things like MTHFR and other things that we've discussed in the past, but that I know are prevalent in this, 
is typically prevalent in this issue? Well, the first thing, you know, these days, everything is now being referred to as personalized medicine and personalized nutrition. Um, I've been doing personalized nutrition professionally since 1986. I am privileged to be on the board of the American Nutrition Association, which is going to be the future of personalized nutritional care. We have an outstanding CEO, Mike Stroka, who has brought this organization from oblivion to where it is right now. And I just wish I could do more for, for the ANA because they are going to be the tip of the spear in this whole process. But I, my, oh, yeah, go ahead, David. You no, want saying, to say? I've spoken with Michael in the past. Oh, you have? Well, then you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is a man that is a, a graduate of Georgetown University, not only as an attorney, but as a diplomat. He has a, a master, I guess it's a master's in diplomacy. Pleasure to know the man. Pleasure to work with him. I wish I could do more for him, but he seems to be very capable of uh, making magic out of nothing. Hmm. So, so what are the um, things that you look for most, maybe in either genetics or any uh, looking at the bacteria in the body or... Well, I, I can bring you forward to this morning. This morning, I, I got some results on a patient. Now, all these tests are done by the physicians, not by me. The only test I may ask for would be 23andMe, because that gives me some insight into the genetic variants that may be affecting this patient. You know, you can't be on the staff of Columbia for nine years in the Department of Genetics and not learn something. So, as I said to you earlier, if you turn me loose to learn, I will learn. So this morning, I got this report on this patient I was concerned about. She also was, was in very dire straits. I told her when she had to have the surgery, uh, we knew who the surgeon should be, and she came out of that beautifully. But recently, she was going down the tube. She was going down the tube very quickly. She was appearing to have a recurrence of inflammatory bowel disease, despite the fact that there was no, no obvious reason for her to have it. And so after analyzing the situation and believing that she was healed, I told her to stop a variety of the supplements that I had given her. And this morning she said to me, Dr. Grovett, I can't believe this, but when I stopped the supplements you told me to take, the problem went away. How did you know this? Well, you know, that's my job. So that's what I mean by personalization. I didn't pile on something. I actually took things away and she became normal again. So it is deeply personalized. And that's what the ANA stands for. And that's why I support them emotionally, financially, and any other way I can think of. And what are the key genetic factors that you look for? Well, let's start with uh, MTHFR. That stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. It's an enzyme. If you go back into the history of, of medicine, there was a disease called, um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on this now, spina bifida. Uh, spina bifida, at least I had learned from the history of World War II, had something to do with not getting enough vegetables, not getting enough fruits. And folate, folic acid, became the synthetic form of uh, folate and has been used for years to the point where you can buy a bottle of water and find uh, folic acid in it. Well, it turns out the work by Joel Mason at Tufts University suggests that folic acid, the synthetic in quantities greater than one milligram, 
could actually be a growth factor. And so we start to look at one milligram plus as a growth factor, that implies its involvement in cancer. Yet, 50% of the American public has an MTHFR gene variant, meaning they can't handle folic acid. Thankfully, they're very lucky to have that situation. However, if you recognize that they have that problem, and you can do that by doing a, a genetic analysis, you can supply them with methylfolate. And methylfolate does not cause the same issues that folic acid does. And so that's what's very important to me because the, the cells in the GI tract are turning over every three, four, five days. Folic acid or folate is key to having normalized intestinal cells. So if we don't recognize that people have an MTHFR gene variant, how are we going to maintain a normal, healthy intestinal cell? It's a 50-50 proposition there. And so once I learned that this was as common as it is, I started either doing genetic testing or empirically just giving people methylfolate instead of folic acid. And lo and behold, I started to see just from that alone, people responding to medication that they weren't responding to. And so I just kept building on, on this. And then I kept talking about the, the organisms in the bowel. And I was being told all the time, that's just nothing. It, you know, that's, that's stool. That's all it is. Yeah, the organisms represent about two pounds of stool. And yes, today, what do we know? They're responsible for everything. That's all you hear. It's the microbiome. Well, I didn't know to call it the microbiome at the time, but I knew it had a function. And why was it important to me? Because Henry Coulter once said to me, Dr. Grovett, I would like you to take ruberfolin twice a day. And I said to him, that, that's just B12 and, and folic acid. He said, yes, but it's very important for the growth of the organisms in the bowel. Uh, he told me that in uh, 1967. Yeah, 1967. That, that's when he told me that. I never forgot it. He was a French-trained physician. And he almost became the, well, he eventually became the, uh, the chief of gastroenterology at the Leahy Clinic and then the University of Birmingham. So we're talking about a pretty bright guy. But here, this man was the only one that knew that folic acid and B12 were important to the microbiome. Not one doctor ever discussed that with me. And every patient of mine gets methylfolate and B12. There's no downside on any of it. I take... I take methylated uh, uh, of each and then some uh, fermented supplements that, that provide it as well. Yeah, the only problem with taking it empirically is that you, may, you might also have what's called a COM-T uh, gene variant. Uh, and sometimes in those patients, in those individuals, it affects them psychologically or, or emotionally. Uh, because of the effect on nerve transmitters. So again, you have to personalize. It sounds like, oh, let's just give everybody a high dose of B12 and folate and everything will be fine. Well, you actually could take a, you can take a normal person and turn them into somewhat abnormal in behavior and mood just by giving them too much. So you can see, again, personalization. These are the things that I have to get across to people. You just can't walk into a health food store with $1,000 because you'll wind up buying every bottle on the shelf. Some may help you, some may make you sick. 
Got it. And how when when someone comes to you after you have a a, a path forward, enough information to have a path forward, what's the range of of the timeline from when they start seeing they start to when they start seeing results and Okay, well, it used to be a lot longer than it is now. Um, At the risk of sounding immodest, I'm telling the truth. I can put somebody into remission if they're listening to everything I'm saying within 30 days. Fantastic. Well, Well, you have to have somebody that's willing to do it because, you know, you once said to me, you could stand on the corner of Fifth Avenue with a thousand dollar bill and and a solution, and nobody would take it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had that same experience. No, it's pretty. It's it's pretty unbelievable to me because this concept of not having proof, but no one's going to do a clinical trial on an N of one. Um, and that's been the conundrum, I think, of of what I would call traditional Western medicine. You know, my wife has has often said this, Mel, why hasn't any doctor really studied you carefully to see what you are, what you're doing, how you've turned out? Not one. I I will say that my my last physician, Jeff Stein, uh, he supported me all the way through. Jeff was my doctor. I think uh, he, he was graduated from his residency program, and I got him a year later. Uh, and in the early days, he, like everybody else, thought I was a little, um, I don't even know how to put it, but maybe Munchausen, you know, because I, I knew too much about something. So if I knew too much about something, I must be trying to create the problem. Huh. But But over time, Jeff began to realize that I knew what I was doing. And so Jeff retired from active practice, I think, uh, three or four years ago. Um, And he came out of his residency. He became my doctor a year or two after. He's now retired, and I'm 84 with a full-time practice. (laughs) And and from uh, from our last conversation, I recall you saying that uh, m- most of your consults these days are now since COVID hit with, over Zoom. Um, it's interesting what's happening now with COVID nineteen. In, in fact, that's the reason I have come out of the shadows and started talking about this. The notion that you can put children or adults on an immunosuppressant and then say that this is a good thing during the pandemic, that there's some evidence that may be beneficial. If that is the case, please present that evidence to me. I would love to look at it. No mother nor father wants their kid on an immunosuppressant in a pandemic. Well, we didn't have the pandemic Okay, it worked. But, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Now, I had a doctor say to me, um, I never heard of teeth causing inflammation in the bowel. I've heard that from several doctors. So I repeat, I'm 84 years old. My wife's, my daughter's pediatrician, Ernest Gordon, warned us because of my past history with Crohn's disease that every time Kathy would cut a tooth, she probably would run a fever, she'd probably have a tummy ache, and we should just not worry about it. Even though we have this this history, it's probably just the tooth cutting through. We had that with Jordan Shapiro. Jordan Shapiro had four teeth in her upper jaw and four teeth in her lower jaw. And she was under the care of an uh, orthodontist. And he was watching, he had uh, 
orthodontic uh, appliances in her mouth because he didn't want her teeth to start moving around. Within a month of my seeing Jordan Shapiro, she went to bed one night, ran about 105 fever, woke up the next day. Of course, I'm talking to one or three or four times a day at this point. And I said to her, take her to the orthodontist and see what's going on. She went to the orthodontist and he looked in her mouth and he said, all your teeth are coming through. All of them. Who is this nutritionist that you say you went to that improved Jordan's nutrition? She mentions my name and he says, oh, my God, he was one of my students. Wow. He taught he taught oral uh, health and nutrition in that program from Columbia when I was a master's student. So at this point in my life, David, it's one degree of separation. The things that happen to me every day now are just extraordinary. Yeah, I I. I know a bunch of people who's ma mainly whose children. I have several adults that um, I want them to listen to this first, and then I'm probably going to refer several people to you. I hope they follow through. What I'm consistently amazed by is I know I know a bunch of people whose children are on immune suppressants and they haven't changed behavior. And I, I just you know in in this COVID world, and I I just don't understand it. Well, uh, it's easy to understand because if you look at the data on immunosuppression, 30% of it works exactly the way you want it to, 30% not ideally, and 30% not at all. Now, it doesn't matter which one of the immunosuppressants you want to use, but let's talk about the biologics for a moment. When people ask me what's the difference between one biologic and another, I tell them the price. You know, it all started off with the first one. I'm going to stay away from names because I, I don't want to uh, be misconstrued as, as uh, being negative about this. But the first one, I think, was $1,000 uh, an infusion. And the next one was 2500 Then the next one was 22000 every two months. And for that one, you have to wait a long time to see it work, if it's going to work. And then the next one that I've seen used uh, has a black box warning on the top. Now, black box warning uh, is, I, I will admit, it has helped some, some of my patients, no question about it. But in a pandemic, it is a cause for parental concern. And then there's another one that um, basically a JAK inhibitor, JAK2 inhibitor. Uh, you know, in a pandemic, this is, to me, not the most ideal way to go. Certainly, why don't we try nutrition first? Nutrition doesn't work. Okay, you do what you need to do. But there's very little cost involved as far as nutrition is concerned. And effectiveness is pretty good. So is that is that just to come full circle? The is is the bulk of what you're doing uh, just a combination of taking out and adding in, based yes. around nutrition. Yes, and that's the personalization. With this last patient, who I I thought I covered every base, and just at the last moment, I said to her, just. Stop, and they gave her a list of things to stop. And this morning she tells me, how did you know this? Well, you know, living with an illness sometimes teaches us something if you're willing to learn. And just curious with, because I, I have my own views um, based on my history um, and, and what I know, and not just my personal history, but other people that I've, advised and other research I've done over the years. What are what are the most common things that you take out? Like sugar and what what are the most common things you take out? 
we can start with the very first thing that is used in medical school to teach doctors the model for inflammation, and that's carrageenan. Carrageenan uh, was something years ago. I told patients, stay away from this stuff. It's the model for inflammation. Why would this be in the, in the diet of a human being? Worse than that, most doctors did not know it was in the diet, but they did know that they used it in medical school. So that's the first thing. The second thing is maltodextrin. Now, I would suggest that you pick up any one of the so-called shakes. Uh, take the most popular shake, and I'm not going to mention any names. Take a look at the first few ingredients. Maltodextrin will be right up there on the top. I, I just went through this. My sons asked me to analyze and one of the for, for weight gain because my youngest, while he's six feet tall now, is still thin. And and someone told my wife to get this and it's expensive. And, and I was looking at it. I said, why would you pay all this money for maltodextrin? It's not particularly, it's nothing. It, it has no nutrient value. It's just weight. It's just dead weight. It's more than dead weight. It's dangerous. Wow. Wow. Interesting. You know, the by December 31, 2019, I think it was Barack Obama who signed an executive order that carrageenan had to come out of the food chain. I'm not going to tell you what happened after he left office. I haven't seen it much because there, there really was a, a response to anti-carrageenan being in food. Um, so I haven't really seen a lot of it, and I'm hoping we don't see a lot of it, but there's still plenty of carrageenan. And, you know, the Israelis discovered a long time ago that emulsifiers will literally dissolve out the mucosal layer in the intestinal cells, overlying the intestinal cells. And yet that evidence seems to not have made any any progress in the world of nutrition, in the world of medicine. Nobody pays attention to things that are discovered. It seems like we have a, a structure of doing studies and the studies wind up on a bookcase. Yeah, I liken that to anything you want to change in the healthcare industry. The number one question to ask is, what's the impact on workflow? And if it's significant, it's not going to get adopted. And I think that carries into people's lives. If it's a significant inconvenience, people tend to be lazy. So it takes being ill and particularly ill to, um, to change. You know, we're living in an era now where... Certainly in California, you can walk into a, a cafe and get a, uh, a latte with CBD in it. Uh, CBD suddenly became legal last year. The farm bill under Barack Obama was signed, legalizing hemp and hemp products. But if you go back into the history of CBD, we go back to Eli Lilly who was a pharmacist, I believe. And he acknowledged that there were potentially very beneficial effects of CBD from hemp. And apparently, I don't know this directly, but apparently this was transmitted to John D. Rockefeller and uh, the fellow that owned the Philadelphia Inquirer and all, all the rest of those newspapers. His name escapes me for a moment. Um, they somehow got the government to declare hemp and hemp products illegal. And so that simple act, because that would have crashed the stock market. You know, if you've got something that can literally put people into remission for a variety of different illnesses, uh, that, that was a little bit dangerous as far as their investments were concerned. 
So this became formally illegal. I, you know, now, it's funny. Of course, yeah, I, I thought that it was more around marijuana and CBD extracted from marijuana was illegal, but that CBD from hemp for a while now has been, because I, I know back in 14, when I actually met with Raphael Meshulam in Israel, who worked at Rockefeller in the 60s and discovered cannabinoids and, and separated out the components of, of marijuana into THCA, THC, and CBD. But the, the issue really until the last five years uh, to get it from hemp was that the extraction process was wildly expensive. And we tried hemp with one of my sons back six years ago. It was insanely expensive um, because the, the levels are so low and the extraction methods were so poor. And that is dramatically in the last three years or so dramatically changed where you can get milligram, I think, down to a penny or two at retail from hemp. Um, to get CBD from marijuana is much more efficient because the, the, the prevalence of it in marijuana is much higher. But the regulatory factor in marijuana in most states and what it costs to manufacture just in keeping up on a compliance level sends that price higher. So it's, uh, it's, it's actually, I think it's similar, if not cheaper now to get CBD from hemp because of the lack of regulatory requirements. It is, but let's get back to marijuana for a moment. Anything you put into your lungs is not a great idea. Now, if you wanted to take those extracts and eat them or some other form of of uh, internalizing it. That's one thing. But inhaling smoke, I don't think that's a wise idea for the lungs. Oh, so I... that's, that's point one. Point two, I would like to, uh, at this point in my life, my brother-in-law, Michael Moskowitz, MD, MPH, board-certified psychiatrist, has been dying for years to have me try CBD. And so about three months ago, I decided to listen to him and I tried it. Well, that brought me to the two Michaels and myself, three individuals who have an interest in CBD. And what we did was we, we decarboxylated some of the CBD to create a more favorably anti-inflammatory activity for the abdominal cavity. And we now have that. And basically, uh, we refer to it as uh, fractionated IBD, CBD. And so any person I give this to that has inflammatory bowel disease, in addition to a bunch of other supplements, you know, you can't take CBD and think your vitamin D is going to be hunky-dory. There are supplements that you require. CBD to me, is the best adaptogen Mother Nature ever offered us. Hmm. And so when you take care of the other items in our lives that need attention, vitamin D, nicotinamide riboside, resveratrol, there's good science. Doctors have done good work. Scientists have done good work. Just read the word of David Sinclair. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And, you know, and, and this is a good time to say this because other people will be listening. There's a concept known as hormesis. And hormesis is a very significant uh, situation. What it really means is a low dose does good things and a high dose does bad things. And if you look at David Sinclair's work, it's, it's monumentally significant. Yet, if you take a low dose, yes, what I just said applies. If you take a really high dose, it'll kill your heart cells. So, you know, you have to know what you're doing. And nutrition personalized with understanding of how to use something is significant. And that's what the American Nutrition Association is trying to get across to people. Do it right. Don't give this whole concept a bad name. 
And we've been pushing that for a long time now. Great. I, I guess I, I guess it, I, I need to say that I am on the board of directors there, so maybe I'm a little biased. I, I'm sorry, the board where? I'm on the board of the Certification Board for Nutrition Specialists, which is one of the arms of the American Nutrition Association. Got it. Yeah, I've actually, I, I, I serve on the board of a, a, it's called the American Federation for Aging Research, and David Sinclair's on that on that board, and I've had the, the pleasure of spending some time with him, um, and his, his, his company is doing, you know, he's on from the NAD to NMN, and then uh, he's developing some pretty astounding products in his, yeah. in his company. Um, it's definitely um, makes me feel like I'm standing still. So um, the good thing is, is he's as competitive as they come and his, his goal is to uh, save and protect. Prevent, yeah, he wants to prevent disease. He wants to change the model of healthcare, keep people healthier, reduce our costs. I've said this so many times, it makes me nauseous. But if during this epidemic, the obese people would be listening, one out of 10 Americans has type 2 diabetes. 95% of those type 2 diabetic patients are considered obese. If they just undertook whatever method they wanted, whether it's, it's a, a partial fasting or, or eating two meals or exercising much more than they're capable of, or not capable, more than they have been doing, we come out of this epidemic, we've saved billions of dollars. They don't go blind. They don't lose legs. They don't lose kidneys. And yet what we're seeing is human behavior is very difficult. Yeah, well, it's it's difficult not just to say, hey, you should change, because I think a lot of people would change, but then they say, well, what what grocery store do I go to? How do I prepare it? How do I... And then you get into um, different socioeconomic levels and the education and um, and the exposure in their lives until that point in time where they have to confront a health issue. So it's 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 a massive public health issue that um, it, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think you need a large government, but I don't think large government works. It doesn't it doesn't function at the high level you need. Um, Look, so, there's, a, there's a doctor at Harvard. I think his name is Eisenberg. Yep, I've met with for, him. Okay, for years, he has been a proponent of teaching physicians how to cook and how to interact with patients with respect to nutrition. Now, I don't know how much success he's had with it. Based on what I'm seeing, um, I don't think it's gone very far. His oh, intentions were honorable. Well, at- Actually, they've gone to, he's trained tens of thousands of people. Um, and they even have an annual event, uh, although I don't know if in COVID, if it's still going on this coming year, but they have an annual event with hundreds of uh, corporate chefs. And then they develop so that people every day, wherever they work, wind up learning, you know, wind up eating better food. And then they teach them how to bring that food home so that people can eat that, you know, the better food 24 7. But it's it's funny you mention him because uh, I was with him well, probably about two and a half years ago, and he's a judge in a inner city competition like Chopped uh, up in Boston, and they do it with teenagers. And that year, um, I don't know, five or six teenagers that won it were all inner city kids, teenagers. But what astounded him was, I don't think any of those kids until they entered the competition had ever held a knife and fork and they were teenagers. Yeah. Well, my concern is that I knew he was right, but as I go through my practice every day, I've yet to find one physician who even respects the concept of, well, that's not true. There are two physicians that I have in mind that respect my work. Um, but most physicians say nutrition has nothing to do with Crohn's disease. So they can't have been trained by Dr. Eisenberg, at least not in my, my neck of the woods. Yeah, I think, I think that 
um, I think the field has changed a little bit to the extent that they believe it exacerbates it. Um, I would agree that most people don't believe it can cause it, but that it certainly exacerbates symptoms and that there's things you want to avoid because of symptoms. Um, and I, and I, I, I would have to respectfully disagree, David. I go back to the pediatrician that treated my daughter and told me that every time she cuts a tooth, she's going to have a bellyache and run a fever. Ask any physician. A physician actually said this to me. Do I have any evidence of this? Well, I can't have any evidence because it's not being taught in medical school anymore. Yeah, so that's, no. the, that's the danger of living you know, to 84 and being physically fit and relatively healthy with a short bow. Um, I can reflect back on what was and know that what is is missing the mark. Look, I generally agree. I work with integrative practitioners for my health, and every several years I, I wave to my GI, who I have tremendous respect for. Um, we're just a few clicks of the kaleidoscope off in the way we see the world. Well, I think that, that's a great way to describe it. You're a few clicks. I am majorly clicks out of sync with them. I'm, I'm, but I'm I being- keep trying. Just I'm I'm being a little facetious as well. I'm I'm more in your camp, obviously. And anyway, I I this has been wonderful. And um, you know, I, I'm I'm actually gonna say it here. I would like to uh uh become a patient and see what I can improve in my life and if there's anything I'm missing. Um so I will follow up with you after this uh podcast and uh and and I'm I have a few people in mind that I am going to refer to you. So well, thank you. Be my pleasure to help. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate your taking the time. Anytime, David. Anytime. Right. And and I will add some things in the show notes and and um and put your uh your your website and any other materials you 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 want me to add, I'll I'll make sure they're readily available for everyone that's um that that clicks through and and listens. Oh, thank you, David. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you.